That's going to have to be a regular announcement. I think I'm going to have to add that. Please take your seat. Turn your turn your cell phones off. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, but the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to fellowship around the teaching of your word this evening. We thank you for the tremendous revelation that you have given us that gives us insight into the nature of reality, gives us insight into human history and insight into your plan and purpose for mankind. Now, Father, we pray as we study this evening that we would be responsive to the teaching of the Holy Spirit and that we would be responsive to his challenge in our own personal lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we're in Genesis chapter 5, which is the genealogy, where we start getting into a lot of numbers. So I think that it's important for us to understand a few things about numbers. You know, once you get beyond a certain large number, it gets to be difficult in imagining things. So uh, one word we hear a lot is a billion. So just some ways to think of the number billion. You know, sometimes folks think that the earth is billions of years old. So let's uh, get that in perspective. A billion seconds ago, it was 1959. Some of you weren't born yet. A billion minutes ago, Jesus was walking on the earth. A billion hours ago, probably the earth did not exist. A billion dollars ago was only eight hours and 20 minutes at the rate Washington spends your tax money. Now, just a few other numbers that are important. Right now, we're with the... uh, Situation in Iraq, we have a lot of folks out there on the left of the political spectrum who are complaining about how long it's taking to get things straightened out in Iraq. But just remember, it took less time to take Iraq than it took Janet Reno to take the Branch Davidian compound down in Waco, Texas. That was a 51-day operation. It took less time to find Saddam's sons in Iraq than it took Hillary Clinton to find the Rose Law Firm billing records. It took less time for the 3rd Infantry Division and the Marines to destroy the Medina Republican Guard than it took Ted Kennedy to call the police after his Oldsmobile sunk at Chappaquiddick. And it took less time to take Iraq than it took to count the votes in Florida. Just keep those numbers in perspective. Genesis chapter 5. This is when we get into our next major section in the book of Genesis, the next Toledot section. But by way of introduction, I want to go over the doctrine of civilizations because with this chapter, we end the first of the civilizations. So let's uh, uh, understand the fact that uh, what the Bible teaches about civilizations. First of all, definition. 
Well, you, I'm going to use the word civilization in two ways. We could use it in one of two ways. We can talk about it with a capital C, civilization. Or we could talk about it with a lowercase c, where you might talk about Western civilization or Eastern civilization, American civilization, European civilization, Hispanic civilization, etc., I'm talking about the capital C in a much broader sense in terms of the panorama of Scripture. So we'll define a civilization as an advanced state of human society in which a level of art, science, industry, and government have been reached. For our purposes, we're talking about civilization in terms of a broad spectrum of time in human history. So a civilization will be defined as an advanced state of human society. That is where man advances in his state of knowledge, and he has a certain level of art, a certain level of science, technology, industry, and government. This, of course, took place in the antediluvian period. Now, that's a word that you all need to learn and understand. It's this word anti, A-N-T-E, not anti, A-N-T-I. That means against. Anti means before. And diluvian is is a word related to the English word flood or deluge and means the flood. So anti-diluvian refers to before the flood. Some of your children think that you're anti-diluvian, but you're not. Okay, there's a civilization before the flood as we studied last time in the genealogy from the the family of Cain where they had uh, redefined the institutions, but they had also developed cities, they had developed technology, they had developed metallurgy, uh, bronze and iron, they were developing weapons. So I believe the civilization prior to the flood was a very advanced civilization. Their technological base may have been quite different from anything we know. We also know that in the construction projects that took place after the flood, such as the construction of the pyramids, I know from study of military science when I was in college, there were um, certain types of weapons that were developed, and using the type of material that we know they had, we can't duplicate those engineering feats, and we don't know how they did it. So there was a type of technology that existed prior to the flood that could have been quite advanced. I remember back during the late 70s, there was the thing with chariots of fire and von Daniken's theory about people from outer space who came and colonized the earth. And and I believe there's all possibility that there was some sort of advanced technology before the flood that survived for a while after the flood. But in the in the aftermath of the flood, the short generation period, as the lifespan shrank, I think that a lot of that technology was lost, and then it took a long time to rediscover it. If you think about how much how much technical innovation there could have accomplished if Leonardo da Vinci had lived to be a thousand instead of dying at about whatever it was, 60 or 70. I mean, a mind like that could have come up with all kinds of technical innovations. And he was probably just an average achiever compared to the uh, descendants of Adam. Every one of them had that kind of mentality and that kind of uh, innovative skill. So 
the civilization before the flood would have been quite advanced. The second point on civilizations is that the civilizations, as I'm using it, begins with believers only. Each civilization in human history begins with believers only and terminates with a cataclysmic judgment that removes all the unbelievers from the planet. So it begins with believers only and ends with the removal of all unbelievers, and then things start over again. There is a divine judgment in order to protect the human race and to preserve the human race from self-destruction. Third point, each civilization has its own characteristics. Each civilization has its own characteristics related to the Adamic curse. There's a difference in environment which affects plant life and animal life and human beings. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that there were giants in Genesis 6-4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and I don't think that... um, You have the term Nephilim there, which is used of giants. I think that refers to human beings. But I also think that from fossils, we recognize that there were large plants. The animals were large, lions, uh, saber-toothed tigers, uh, certain kinds of of, uh, other animals, deer and and, uh, swine-like animals, uh, boars, wild pigs, were quite enormous, four or five times larger than what we see today, mammoths, mastodons, were quite larger than the present elephant. So there were large, large plants, large animals, and of course we have the, Neph- the presence of the Nephilim, which we'll get into when we get into that passage in Genesis 6. So there were different characteristics. Uh, I think that during this age there are, there, I think, certain animals that lived during the antediluvian period could not survive in the post-Diluvian environment. It was a much uh, more radical environment. There was a, a more stable temperature throughout the earth prior to the flood so that there was like a greenhouse effect because of the water vapor canopy, and this would allow for a number of things, I think, although there have been a number of theories advanced, nobody's ever been able to demonstrate anything as to how that affected the longevity. You read, as we'll see in the genealogy in Genesis 5, that these folks lived to be uh, 900, 900 plus years old, and what contributed to that? Well, it seems like the environment changed so much that uh, due to radiation, due to genetic deterioration, due to changes in the nutrients and plant life, a number of other factors, uh, men do not live as long as they originally lived. So there's a different characteristic in each one of these civilizations due to its relationship to the Adamic curse. Now, to the point number four, there are three great civilizations. Three great civilizations and three cataclysmic judgments. The first civilization is the antediluvian civilization, which began with two believers, Adam and Eve, and terminated with the flood. So the flood is the cataclysmic judgment that ended the first great civilization on planet Earth. And there's some some remnants, some memory that just sort of holds over. I think that these legends about Atlantis are some sort of a uh, memory of a pre-flood uh, civilization. 
Second, we have the post-Diluvian civilization, which is the one in which we live, which began with eight believers who came off the ark and will be terminated by the baptism of fire at the second advent when Jesus Christ returns. That will end the second uh, civilization. Only the believers survive the baptism of fire at the end of the tribulation. And so the third civilization begins, the millennial kingdom, and the millennial state begins with only believers, and yet once again there is a gradual deterioration and degeneracy until you come to the end of the millennial kingdom when there is a uh, Satan is uh, bound during the during the millennium, and when he is released, he leads a revolt against God, the Gog and Magog revolution, and there is fire and brimstone from heaven that wipes out all of those unbelievers, and then the uh, surviving believers go into the eternal state. So what we see is that civilizations, these three civilizations, emphasize the self-destructive tendency of mankind, and each one comes to a crisis point where the Supreme Court of Heaven has to interfere in order to protect the human race from total self-destruction. So point number five, there's a pattern to each of these civilizations. And this pattern is seen historically in Romans chapter 1. Each civilization begins with believers only. And then as the civilization continues, a degenerate degeneracy sets in. So you might want to just hold your place there in Genesis 5. And let's turn over to Romans 1.18 for just a minute. And we'll just briefly see how that gives us the... Uh, shows us the cycle of deterioration. In verse 18, we're told that the wrath of God, that's the judgment of God that comes on these civilizations, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that can be applied, although that's not, Paul was not thinking specifically of the Noahic flood when he wrote that. It could be applied to that because we know that the that the heart of man was deceitful and was thoroughly wicked during the time of Noah. And so God judged the antediluvian civilization, and they were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So man starts off, and he knows God exists, but he suppresses that in unrighteousness. So the first stage is negative volition. And once man rejects God, in the very act of rejecting God, he is focusing on himself. He shifts from God as the ultimate source of truth to himself. Now, this relates to the first arrogant skill, which is self-absorption. We start looking to ourself, to each one of us looks at our own intelligence as the ultimate source and determiner of truth. That's exactly what Eve did in the garden. When Satan asked her, has God said that that you will die? And she said, well, she had to think about that. Well, is this true or not? And so she began to make herself the ultimate reference point for truth, that self-absorption. Now, as a civilization continues and negative volition continues, and there's a continuance of the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, then the next step 
is that people began to define or to redefine reality in order to make civilization safe from the interference of God. So what happens then is you redefine reality. And this is done in order to make people say, see, God interfered. God interfered at the, at the fall and he, he announced a judgment on man. God interferes at the flood. So after the flood, we're going to make civilization safe. So we're going to build the cities to protect us from God. Man is continually trying to redefine reality and exclude God in order to make things safe. Now the result of this pattern is that is that God withdraws common grace. We see this in the development of the passage in Romans 1. That as they reject God, we're told in Romans 1, 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, I want you to remember those four categories that, that Paul mentions. He's thinking he's thinking about the flood here, I think, because of the, what's mentioned in Genesis 5. Then we see the consequences, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them, also gave them up to uncleanness. Uh, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And then verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. So you see these three cycles where God gives them over. So there is a gradual removal of common grace during this time, and man goes through uh, cycles of judgment. As man, as God gives man over to various degrees of degeneracy. And as those various, as that degeneracy develops, various human viewpoint thought forms kick in. So human viewpoint continues to build on its redefinition of reality. And it starts off with the reduction of responsibility for sin. And we saw that with Cain's response. He's not responsible. I'm not my brother's keeper. So there's a reduction of personal responsibility. That is an assault on divine institution number one. And see, all of this takes place as a result of self-absorption. There's a reduction. There's a redefinition of reality, and there is a reduction of responsibility then this leads, once you reduce responsibility, I'm not accountable to God, God's not in the picture, then the next stage is self. the, the next arrogant skill, which is self-indulgence. If I'm not accountable to anyone, if there's not a God to whom I'm responsible, then I can begin to indulge in whatever my fantasies allow. See, this is what happens. Once you start redefining reality, that leads to living in a fantasy world. And there are no longer any absolutes, which is something we'll get to. You're living in this fantasy world so you can indulge all of your desires, all of your lusts without any fear of uh, God's involvement, any fear of divine discipline. Then as you are involved in self-indulgence and those sins... 
that leads to rationalizations and justifications. This is the third arrogant skill of self-justification. You begin to erect more and more sophisticated and complex stories about origins, about ethics, about uh, the source of law, the source of absolutes, in order to justify living in this fantasy world, in order to justify the rejection of absolutes, in order to justify the degeneracy that is now becoming normal. So that leads us to the fourth point, which is when man begins to call bad good and good bad. There is a complete reversal of norms and standards. And this is the fourth arrogant skill of self-deception. And then fifth, man at this point is doing exactly what what is described in verse 23 of Romans 1, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And this leads to idolatry, worshiping elements of the creation, including self. And this is self-idolatry, self-deification. And that takes place not only individually, but it... it as it operates within a culture, it takes place across the board. But a great illustration of this process, especially the fourth point, where we're calling bad good and good bad in this episode that occurred this last year in removing the statue to the Ten Commandments, the statue about the Ten Commandments down in the Supreme Court building in Alabama. It's a complete reversal of an understanding of history. There's so much that, that undergirds that that it's just amazing. It's a complete reversal and rewriting of history in order for people to do what they did. For one thing, most people don't realize it visually, but the the in, in the rotunda of the Supreme Court building, there was the statue to the to the Ten Commandments, recognizing that historically this is the root and the base for American jurisprudence, that our system is founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic and a Judeo-Christian heritage. And that statue was not as you walked into a courtroom. In fact, it was on the opposite side of the rotunda from the, from the, where the courts were. So you would, you could go there and go to court day in and day out and never once see that statue or have to read the Ten Ten Commandments. But, of course, we're living in an angelic conflict where Satan is trying to destroy any reference in this country to God or recognition to God. And so it's a complete perversion of the historical founding of this this country. And another thing about this that most people don't realize, it's not about the separation of church and state. This has nothing to do with this. I mean, that's a that's another issue. The whole term separation of church and state or wall of separation of church and state came out of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a Baptist church in Danbury, Connecticut. And he used that phrase in that in that letter, and it doesn't have anything to do with how it's been utilized in the judicial system in the past 40 or 50 years. 
In fact, the it's just the way it's being used today is just the opposite of what the founding fathers intended. Now, the founding fathers were not all Christians. Now, I've just committed a terribly politically incorrect thing by calling them founding fathers. You know, that's being excised from textbooks today because it's such a sexist term. They're supposed to be the founders, but they're the founding fathers because they were men. They weren't women and they weren't homosexual. They were the founding fathers. They weren't all Christians in a biblical definition of that term. By that, I mean that that they were not all men who had put their personal faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, but they all thought within the framework within the boundaries of a Judeo-Christian ideology because Western culture at that time was theistic. While there were some that might have been deistic and it's arguable how many were actually saved and who who weren't and who were deists and who weren't, nevertheless, they all believed that there were absolutes, that there was an absolute right and wrong, and that viewpoint that they all held resulted in certain Certain views about are the certain views about the nature of God and the nature of man, which were embodied in the documents and writings of that era. They looked upon God as the Creator, as distinct from creation. They understood the Creator-creature distinction. If you just look at the the Declaration of Independence, it uses the phrase. Uh, rights that were endowed by our Creator. They understood that natural rights, freedom, liberty, was something that came from the Creator. It wasn't something that's generated from culture. So when we look at our diagram that I use, where we have the Creator up here, and down below all of the different elements of the creation that values... Such as liberty and freedom did not originate down here. It originated up here in the mind of the a, a God whom they referred to as the Creator. So they also used the term Almighty. Frequently, they simply referred to God as the Almighty. Other terms that they used to describe God were Judge. Providence and the divine governor of the universe. Now, these terms specifically refer to a Judeo-Christian deity. They do not refer and cannot refer to a Buddhist deity, a Hindu deity. They can't refer to an Islamic deity. These were clearly concepts that indicated that their view of God and their view of the source of liberty was the Judeo-Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus that these other so-called deities in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, or any other world religion would not fit that bill. You can read about this in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, in James Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance, in the Virginia Act of the, for the Establishing of Religious Freedom, and even in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. The God that these documents speak of is, first of all, the Creator God. He is totally other, totally distinct from man. He is almighty. He governs the universe. But he is also one that created the universe with a volitional capacity. They understood that human beings had uh, had volition and were responsible to worship God, but God would not coerce them. They were to worship God in spirit and truth. 
therefore, we can conclude from that evidence that only the Judeo-Christian God can be the source of the liberty that they spoke of. Only the Judeo-Christian God can be the source of genuine religious liberty. Now, today, we are diluting liberty with the term tolerance. And you just pay attention to that when you listen to uh, the talking heads on television or wherever. They talk about religious tolerance. Well, the, the founding fathers had a much higher concept called religious liberty. Michael Novak recently noted that, quote, tolerance is a different and less profound concept than the right to religious liberty. Tolerance may arise merely from a temporary lack of power to enforce conformity. It does not by itself invoke a natural right. The concept of religious liberty, on the other hand, depends upon a particular concept, conception of God, a particular conception of the human person, and a particular conception of liberty which I might add can only be derived from a particular conception of God and humanity. Liberty comes from a specific view of who God is and the nature of man. And therefore, we can say that genuine religious liberty can only be guaranteed by a judicial and ethical system that is grounded in that that concept of God. If you change that concept of God, you're going to lose your basis for being able to even talk about liberty. That's what's happened. And see, and on, uh, once that conception of God is no longer allowed in the marketplace of ideas, and you can't, you can't have a Christmas tree, you can't have a nativity scene at Christmas, you can't have a cross at Easter, you can't talk about the resurrection of Christ in public schools. Once you remove that conception of God from the marketplace of ideas, and once you remove the concept of God as the creator who is the basis of all absolutes, then the only source of absolutes or universals is from down here in the creation itself. Once you remove God as a creator God, which is what happened with evolution and why it's so dangerous and it undermines our culture, is that values, instead of coming from up here where they're grounded in some sort of absolute, values and liberty, values such as liberty and freedom can only come from down here, from society, from culture, and they become nothing more than human inventions in order to meet certain uh, pragmatic needs. And once again, by, by removing the Creator, you destroy all absolutes. Once the locus of absolutes is in the creation, then the reality of universals becomes a sham. You can't talk about anything. To even make a sentence... To even form a sentence, let's use a good example here. Logic is meaningless. Now that's a proposition. Proposition is defined as any declarative sentence that can be proved to be true or false. How would you prove that to be true? If logic is meaningless, if you're going to try to prove that to be true, you would have to do what? You would have to use logic. See, you would have to, to even make a statement like logic is meaningless, you have to believe that logic is a word that has an absolute meaning that is the same yesterday, today, and 20 years from now, and 20 centuries from now, 
and that meaningless is a word that also has an absolute meaning. So you're assuming absolutes. You're assuming that this can be verified, which implies logic, in order to to verify the statement logic is meaningless. In other words, you have to assume logic is valid to prove the statement logic is meaningless. So you get in a cycle. This is what happens in the pagan mind is that they have to, they don't admit it, but they have to assume that there are absolutes that exist outside of creation in order to prove that there isn't a creator. And this is, once you do that, you rip the foundation out from under society. And this is exactly what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1, and this is what happened in the antediluvian civilization as they deteriorated and degenerated because of negative volition. And in Genesis 6-5, at the end of this section... We, we will read, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously, so that there were only eight people who were believers at the end of that civilization. So each civilization begins with believers, but because of the fallen nature of man and his propensity to read God out of his life, then it ends up in pure relativism, which leads to pure degeneracy, which ends up destroying uh, the human race. And so God has to step in and with a cataclysmic divine judgment in order to remove the cancer of that, that uh, degeneration. Now, this section from in Genesis from chapter 3, really, through chapter 6, is a picture of the first civilization, the antediluvian civilization. And that civilization began with Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden. They were in a state of perfect environment. They had one test, one area of volitional responsibility, and that had to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the human race came under condemnation. The human race came under spiritual death and the consequences of spiritual death and they were subject to all of the consequences of the fall. As that civilization developed, it was a time when brothers and sisters married, as we pointed out last time, without any genetic problems, so that you had uh, uh, everyone was closely related to each other. So you had a different, diff- you had different dynamics in the divine institution of marriage. But pagan man perverted that even more by introducing polygamy. The animals were different during that age. You had dinosaurs. You had all manner of different uh, animals. Weather was different. Uh, Physical laws were different. We we studied this in Genesis 2, that that the river that flowed out of Eden diverged into four rivers. That doesn't happen anywhere on the planet today. You had an underground system of hydraulics that watered the planet rather than a rain cycle like we do today. People lived for 900 plus years. It was a different world. If you got a time machine, went back to the antediluvian period, you would think you were on another planet. It was completely, radically, radically different. But that civilization degenerated due to negative volition and then the angelic infiltration that we will get into when we talk about the sons of God 
uh, taking the daughters of men for their wives in Genesis chapter 6. And it was an attempt by Satan to destroy the genetic purity of the human race so that God could not provide a Savior who would be from the pure seed of the woman. And so it came to a point where not that there were uh, Nephilim have all over the earth or that every single individual was genetically tainted, but it reached that critical mass where that would be the eventual outcome. And so God stepped in and interfered once again and judged the earth with a cataclysmic flood. Now, Genesis 5 begins to set us up for that, and this is, as I said, the third section or the third section in the book. The first section is the introduction, Genesis 1-1 down to 2-3. And then we have the first toledot. I mentioned the Hebrew word uh, toledot, which means what's translated generations. It's translated history. Looks like this, toledot, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. Sometimes it's translated, these are the generations of. New King James Version translates it, this is the history of. Uh, others say this is the, uh, th- these are the uh, results of something of that nature. It is, it is describing the descendants of that original person. So the first uh, section of the book, 1-1 one, one down to 2-3, talked about the creation of the heavens and earth. And then starting in from 2-4 down through the end of chapter 4, we have the second section, which is the generation of or the history of the descendants. What happened to the heavens and the earth? And then in chapter 5, verse 1, we have the uh, second Toledot mentioned, or the beginning of the third section, the book of the history of Adam. Here the New King James shows it's not consistent by translating it genealogy. But it is the book of the history of Adam, what happened to Adam. And this section runs from 5-1 down to 6-8. It starts off, this is the book of the history or the descendants of Adam. And then it ends with, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 6-9 begins the next Toledot section. This is the genealogy, or this is the history of Noah. So this section is one we'll go through rather rapidly. In the uh, previous sections, I've looked at the whole section in its entirety and then taken it apart. But since the majority of this section has to do with Chapter 5 and the genealogies, I'll just spend this week on Chapter 5 and then next week on the first part of chapter 6, setting up, setting the stage for why God had to judge the entire earth with a worldwide cataclysm. So in Genesis 5.1 we read, This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then there's a reminder, a reminder that relates to the creation. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so we're told that, that when God made man, he created him in God's likeness. And here we have the phrase, ba, or actually it's bid, moot. This is a preposition, bi, bid, 
M-U-T. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, on this word. This part, the B-I, is your preposition and it should be translated as. It can mean in. So, and that's how it's usually translated in the likeness of God, but this is a, called abate essence, and this should be translated as. He created man as his image. So here we have this preposition with the word demut, which means likeness. Now there's a shift that takes place here. What we're going to look at is the noun and the prepositional phrase, and I've got a slide here that may help us uh, understand this just a little bit. If you look at um, look at the next verse, look at let's go to Genesis uh, or in the first first verse. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. Now that is a direct reference back to Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight. That God created man, male and female, uh, in the image and likeness of God. There, the prepositions and the nouns shift around. And we'll make a point on that in just a minute. But all I want to say at this point is it's a reminder by, by God the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses to remind people that it started off with perfect environment. God created them male and female. He blessed them and named them mankind. Adam there means mankind in the day when they were created. So Genesis 5, 1 and 2 looks back to that time of perfect environment. And then we're going to see what happened. Remember, there was the penalty of death. And so the key word that you're going to see in the key phrase you're going to see in this chapter is, and he died over and over and over again. Now, verse 3 states, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image. So that's the, the two phrases that we need to look at. In his own likeness. And according to his image. Now, likeness is the word demut, and image is the word tsela. Now, here's a chart to try to show the contrast with Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 5.3. The first word that we find in Genesis 1.26 is that man is created, God says, let us create man in our image. And it's that preposition ba plus the noun tselem, and it should be translated as our image. And we studied that in detail, and God meant that man was going to be created as his representative. He isn't in the image of God. He is is the image of God. Then the next phrase that's used is kidmetenu, which comes from the word we find for likeness, demut, and the ki is the preposition that means according to. So we have... Uh, as our image and according to our likeness. That's the phraseology. This is foundational to understanding the, dis- the, the, the distinctiveness of mankind. See, man has nefesh, which is roughly translated soul or breath. The animals also are said to have nefesh. What makes the difference between the animals and man is that mankind is created in the image, uh, as the image of God according to his likeness. Then in Genesis 5.3, there's a slight reversal of these words. First, instead of as our image, the preposition ba is now with demut. 
what happens is the prepositions switch on the nouns. So instead of as our image, it's now as his own likeness that that Adam uh, begot a son as his own likeness and according to his image. So you see this reversal the of the prepositions with those those nouns. So you see that the ba shifts from being with the tselem to the demut, and the uh, ka, the kaf preposition shifts from the tselem, uh, shifts from the uh, demut in Genesis 1:26 to the tselem in Genesis 5:3. Now, there's a lot of things we could perhaps say about this, but the main emphasis here is simply that a change has taken place. A change has taken place that's ever so slight. Man is still uh, created as God's image, and this is the reason given in Genesis 9 for capital punishment. The reason God delegates the right to capital punishment to the human race is because man, when somebody kills someone, they have destroyed someone who is the image of God. And even though it may be distorted or corrupted in some sense because of sin, man is still the image of God. Now, the shift of the prepositions with the nouns here indicates that there has been a change that instead of being identical to Adam as he was created, his son is now in his likeness, or as his likeness, and in or according to his image. So it is uh, follow. It's still in the image of God, but it is distorted by. It's distorted by sin and the sin nature. Then we read. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And now we, are, we begin the genealogy. From verse 3 down through the end of the chapter, we are in a genealogy. And last time I introduced you to two key words in understanding genealogies. Well, actually, I introduced you to four. We have a linear genealogy, which goes from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and to the next generation. We had an example of that at the end of chapter 4, and this is also a linear genealogy. Each linear genealogy ends with a segmented genealogy where you have different sons mentioned as uh, the branch. You have various brothers mentioned. So at the end of chapter 10, Noah has three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then two other words that I introduced you to last time were a closed genealogy and an open genealogy. In an open genealogy, they don't have numbers or ages. There are only seven generations in the Cain genealogy, but there are ten generations given in the Seth genealogy or the Adamic genealogy of chapter 5, which indicates that there were probably some gaps in the genealogy of Cain. But there's no numbers, so they could have gone from father to grandson. In the Genesis 5 genealogy, there can't be any gaps. It's a closed genealogy because every one of these follows the same formula. You have a person who lives X number of years, and he gives birth to A, and then that, then he lives another Y years and he dies. 
then A lives X number of years, and he gives birth to B. And then he lives another uh, Y years, and he dies. B then lives X number of years. See, as soon as you start putting those numbers in there, you close that genealogy. Even if you were to skip from father to grandson, the father would still be 80 years old when the grandson's born. So you can't put a gap into that genealogy. So it gives us a tight time frame. Now, one of the problems that people have come up with in this is that these folks lived a long time. Adam lived uh, 930 years. Others lived uh, a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. The longest is Methuselah, who lived 969 years. The shortest was um, uh, Lamech, who lived 777 years. That's not counting Enoch, who never died. So you have uh, men living nine centuries. And there have been those who have questioned the legitimacy of that based on what was going on in the ancient world. We have other uh, king lists that are mythological. See, that's the attempt from the liberal uh, scholar who doesn't take the Bible literally. says, well, these numbers are they're, they're not to be taken literal. Years were somehow different, but there's no basis anywhere in Scripture for defining years differently. A year in the Bible was usually 360 days. A day was defined by morning and evening, a 24-hour period. If those were, unless you uh, had extremely short day and nights, the earth was really spinning fast on its axis so that a day wasn't 24 hours but was only four hours, uh, that's the only way you could reduce those, you know, 969 to some, something smaller. If you made the days longer, well, then those years would be longer, and a year still measured by the earth's uh, revolution around the sun. So these must be taken that way. They can't be months. Some people have suggested that, but when you're when you're having uh, uh, children at the, for example, Mahalalel gives birth to Jared when he is 65 years of age. If that's 65 months, that's just five years and five months he'd be giving birth. Well, see, that just doesn't make sense. You have to take these numbers uh, literally. Now, in the ancient world, there were king lists that were found that are mythological. And uh, one, for example, one from Sumer, a very famous Sumerian king list, lists eight kings, and the total of their reigns, the total of their reigns was 241,200 years, eight kings. So that's about 60,000 or um, eight, that's about 30,000 years each. And that's, uh, that's, goes way beyond understanding. Now, you could look at that and say, well, why not? Well, let's put up another chart that we'll look at just to see why that would be a problem. Here's a graph. This is something that you ought to do. I did this years ago when I was in college, took out a piece of graph paper and charted the ages of each of the patriarchs. And what we'll look at right now is only the this side, for the most part, up to about 10th generation to Noah, that side of this graph. Can you see that? Just that side of the graph. As you'll notice, after Noah, from this point on, everything falls off very rapidly. People after the flood did not live as long as those before the flood. And th- this is 
exactly what you expect if the Bible is giving accurate figures, because this drop-off, this drop-off is something that can be expected uh, mathematically. It's a typical exponential decay curve. If you were to take, um, uh, if you were to take a bowl of or a pot of boiling water and dump a bunch of ice cubes in it with a thermometer and measure every minute, measure the temperature, and then plot that on a graph paper, you would come out with this same kind of curve, an exponential decay curve. You take an electronic uh, capacitor and discharge it, you'll get the same kind of curve. It fits a a typical math uh, pattern, this exponential decay curve. But you chart that on, you take the ages on these mythological king lists, it doesn't fit any kind of pattern. It doesn't show that kind of thing. So this is what you would expect if the numbers are real, unless, uh, uh, you know, Moses is writing this with his uh, computer and working out all the logarithmic calculations to make sure that everybody's age fits a perfect, uh, uh, perfect decay pattern. So the evidence here speaks of something that was legitimate. Now we'll go to this slide, and this gives you the a look at the each generation. Adam will have him born in year one, and he lived to be 130 years when he had his first child. Well, not the first child, but when he had Seth. Cain and Abel have already been born. So that tells us that the child that's mentioned here is not necessarily the um, the firstborn. It's the one that God wants to emphasize in the lineage. So Adam, at age 130, gives birth to Seth, and he lives another 800 years until he dies for a total of 930 years. So he dies in year 930. Then we have Seth. Seth is born in the year 130. Now, these are counted from the day of creation, because if Adam was in the garden for 90 years before he sinned, it's still 90 years. You're still measuring time, morning and evening, day one. At the end of 360 of those days, it's a year, even if it's in perfect environment. Perfect environment doesn't mean time doesn't exist. It just means decay doesn't exist. Okay, some people try to get around it that way and say, well, you don't start counting Adam until the fall. But that, that's, that's not honest. He, when, if Adam lived a thousand years before he ate of the fruit, he would still live a thousand years whether it was in perfect environment or not. He just wouldn't decay. So Seth is born when Adam's 130. He gives birth to his first, to the child that's mentioned here at age, when he's 105. Lives another 807 years. He's 912 years at his death, which is the year 1042. Then Enosh. Enosh is born in the year 235. His child is born when he's 90 years of age. He lives another 815 years for a total of 905 years. And he dies in the year 1140. Canaan is the fourth. He's born in the year 325. So you see, Adam, Seth, Enosh, are all, all those generations are still alive. He gives birth to his son at 70, lives another 840 years for a total of 910 years, dying in the year 1235. Then his son is Mahalalel. He's one of the youngest. He is uh, born in the year 395. He has his son at 65. He lives 830 years until death. 
and he dies at 895 in the year 1290. Now, I'm, there's only one son who's mentioned in each of these generations, but it also mentioned, I mean, mentioned by name, but the text says that they had many other sons and daughters. And last time I pointed out that if we just assume that they had three sons and three daughters, and they paired up and had six children, that with all of these generations living at the same time, by the time of the flood, the population on the earth would have been between six and seven billion. So it adds up quickly when all these generations are still alive. Jared was born in the year 460. He gives birth to the son mentioned in the genealogy at age 162. Now, one would assume, I think honestly, that by the year 162, he had had a lot of kids. So when Enoch is born to Jared at age 162, Enoch is probably not the first one. Okay, Jared lives another 800 years until he dies, and he's 962, 962 years of age when he dies in the year 1422. Enoch, his son. Enoch is the special case here. Enoch is born in the year 622. He gives birth to his son, Methuselah, who's the oldest man in the Bible. But the oldest man in the Bible died before his father did. Because Enoch did not die. He lived in under 300 years. And at the age of 365, the text says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. God took him. They just walked right into what I believe is Eden and on into paradise. And I think that the walking with God there, it's different from another phrase you have in the Old Testament, walking before God, which has to do with a lifestyle. Now, that's certainly present here. The idea of walking with God certainly indicated that he was following a a, a super lifestyle as a believer in that dispensation, but he was it, it implies an intimacy with God that was far beyond the intimacy that anybody else had with God. Noah is the only other person mentioned in Genesis nine six. It's mentioned that Noah also walked with God and he found grace in God's eyes. So Enoch stands out as a special believer. He was a prophet. We'll look at some passages in a minute. He was a prophet in the during this time who prophesied about the second coming. One of the things you always notice is that throughout the Bible, Noah and the flood of Noah is always referred to in the New Testament in a context that's talking about the second coming. And Enoch prophesied about the second coming, and he goes to be with the Lord. Now, I believe at this time God is still physically present on the earth with his headquarters in Eden. That hasn't been destroyed yet. It's not destroyed until the flood. And so I take this literally, that Enoch had a an intimate relationship where he spent time, just as Adam did in the garden, walking with the Lord and learning from him personally. His son is Methuselah, who's born in 687. Uh, He has a son that's mentioned here, uh, Lamech, when he's 187 years of age. So Lamech is probably the baby, or maybe he's the middle one, but there were probably many children. he lived another 782 years after the birth of Lamech and dies at the age of 969 in the year 1656. Now think about this. From what we've seen already, Adam lived into the life of Enoch. Adam was still alive. Adam didn't die till year, the year 930. Enoch is born in the year 622. 
and it's taken in 987, approximately 50 years after Adam died. Okay, Methuselah's son is Lamech. Lamech is born in the year 874. At the age of 182, his child Noah is mentioned. There were probably others. He lives another 595 years, dies at the age of 777. The Bible makes a point out of numerology. It is a full life, and he dies in the year 1651. Now notice, Methuselah died in 1656, five years after his son Lamech. Lamech dies in 1651, five years before Methuselah, and Methuselah dies in the same year as the flood. Noah is born in the year 1056. He, at the age of 500, he's had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and uh, he does not die until about 2006. Now, let me just make some points about these individuals. Uh, I already pointed out that Adam lived until Lamech. The father of Noah was 56 years of age. Lamech was 56 when Adam finally died, and uh, that was just a few years before Noah was born. Uh, these uh, same names are mentioned, again, in uh, two other genealogies in the Bible, First Chronicles 1, 1 through 4, and Luke 3, 36 to 38. So you have a New Testament passage and another Old Testament passage that attest to the legitimacy of this uh, of these names in this genealogy. Noah lives to be, uh, at, in his 600th year, the flood comes in the year 1656, right after Methuselah died. Now, in most of the uh, Bible, we, we don't have many references to Enoch, but there are a couple of passages that are mentioned. For example, Jude, we're told, in Jude 14 and 15, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, notice, count them, Adam, Seth, two, three, Enosh, four, Canaan, five, Mahalalel, six, Jared, seven, Enoch. That Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is a prophecy about the second coming. It's interesting. The first person in the Bible to get raptured was known for prophesying about the second coming. And Enoch this the quote in Jude 14 and 15 is from the apocryphal book of Enoch, but remember the Holy Spirit can quote from anything, and when he quotes from it, that makes that section that's quoted inerrant. It doesn't mean the book of Enoch itself is inerrant or scriptural. Hebrews 11.5 also uh, mentions Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, this is parallel to the taking of Elijah. In 2 Kings 2.11, or excuse me, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have the Hebrew verb lakak, meaning to take. That's the same word that's used of, of um, Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. 
and it means simply to take or to remove. And we read in 2 Kings 2.11, As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which uh, separated the two of them, and Elijah uh, went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So Elijah and Enoch are the only two individuals in the Old Testament that do not die physically. And therefore, it is often thought that it is those two individuals who will be the two witnesses who come back during the tribulation period. Zechariah 4.14 mentions these two. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. And then Revelation 11.7-12 through mentions these two witnesses who are uh, martyred, and then they rise from the dead after three and a half days. And they ascend, and they are called two prophets of God who confront the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And so since Elijah and Enoch never died, many people think that that refers to them. The Bible never specifies it as such, but I think it is a a likely conclusion uh, to identify them as such. Moses did die. He did have a physical body that was fought over by uh, Michael the Archangel, protected by Michael the Archangel from Satan, and that physical body is mentioned in Jude, so that indicates that that Moses did die physically, that it will not be Moses and Elijah at the end, but Enoch and Elijah. Well, that brings us down to the end of Genesis chapter 5. Noah's 500 years old. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that prepares us for the situation in 16, approximately 1640, after the creation, the year 1640, and the corruption on the face of the earth, where there's a population of, I would think, between 5 and 7 billion at least on the earth. So don't think of it as just a few people. Next time we'll come back and begin our study of the events leading up to the flood with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to come to an understanding that this is history, this is truth, and that this information is given for a reason, and that is to teach us about our place and role in human history, about what has happened in the past and divine judgment on that on that civilization, but the grace that came at the end of that civilization, the grace always precedes judgment, and there is always a way of salvation and deliverance that you have provided in your love. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.